Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 3. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Number one, Christ died for our sins. And we go, yeah, okay, I got that. But we're going to see what that really looked like, okay? What is involved with that? That he was buried, this is important, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And we'll stop there. Go down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did Jesus die on the cross? We say yes, the Bible says so. But there are people that say no, he did not die on the cross. Was Jesus buried? We say yes, the Bible says so. But there are those that say no, he was not buried. As a matter of fact, he didn't die. Did he rise from the dead bodily? We say yes, because of the scriptures. But there are those that say no. And we live in a time where people say, hey, look, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. You believe what you want to believe, and I believe what I want to believe, and it's all good, okay? The trick with this is what Paul says is that if Jesus did not die on the cross, if he was not buried in a tomb, and if he did not raise from the dead three days later, we are believing a lie. It's a sham. And if we're believing a lie, then we are to be pitied because we're putting our hope in something that's just a fairy tale. Who in this room believes in Santa Claus? Do you wait with anticipation when you go to bed on Christmas Eve, knowing that a jolly guy in a red suit's going to hop down your furnace pipe or your chimney and put stuff under your Christmas tree. We don't believe that because it's not true. The Easter Bunny and so forth and so on. See, to say we believe whatever we want to believe, it's all good. It's only worth believing in if it's true. And we're going to look at historical documentation from the Word of God of what really happened from eyewitnesses. This is not going to convince people, okay? Jesus rising from the dead did not convince people that he was the Son of God and the Messiah. Jesus raising the dead and dead people rising after his resurrection and walking through Jerusalem did not convince people. This is for us to be able to set our 
hopes on, our foundation on. Yes, what we believe is true. But don't think that, hey, if I just present the facts, people are going to go, I get it. I totally believe it. Look at our society that we live in. You can state the facts all the live long day and people will still not believe them, right? You believe what you want to believe. But we put our hope in a risen Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, it is one of the most documented events in human history. And according to people like Simon Greenleaf, who was the dean of the School of Law for Harvard University uh, quite some time ago, it is the best documented case for the resurrection of Christ, of anything that's out there, the word of God. He used the rules of, I think it's called jurisprudence, I think, to prove he took the resurrection of Jesus to court. And it showed that the facts are in Jesus' favor. Okay? This is what we're going to look at today. It is of first importance, according to Paul. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now, turn over to the book of Luke. And we are going to begin in the Garden of Gethsemane. Actually, if I can find Luke, there we go. Okay, we're in Luke chapter 22, verse 39, okay? And I'm going to be pulling Mark, John, and Matthew into all of this. We're going to do some bouncing around, but we're going to keep this kind of in order as to what's happening, all right? So the Passover has happened. Jesus is now with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in Mark chapter 14, verse 36... When Mark records this, Jesus starts his prayer with the word Abba. That is Aramaic for daddy, Papa. So here is the Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees calling out to his daddy. And he says, and we know how this goes from the Gospels, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If we can do this any other way, don't make me go this way. But not what I want, it's what you want, right? 
Luke tells us that Jesus was sweating drops of blood. Now, if you've been in my classes, you probably know that I'm going to refer to this as something called hemotidrosis. Okay? It's very rare. And it's when under extreme stress and duress, a person's capillaries in the skin will burst. And they will burst around the sweat glands and they will literally sweat blood. It's very rare, but it happens. It's a medical condition, okay? This isn't fairy tale. But you gotta be under extreme duress. How's this? Jesus is going to be crucified. We'll see what that entails. He knows what he's walking into. He knows he's going to be scourged. Keep in mind Psalm 22, because it's the crucifixion and the scourging. Okay, You can read that later on if you want to, but it's the crucifixion from Jesus' firsthand experience Okay, before crucifixion ever existed. So Jesus knows what he's walking into. Number two, he knows that he is going to take your sin, my sin, and the sin for every human being that would ever live upon himself. He would become guilty before God on our behalf. And then his father would unleash the full wrath of judgment upon him so that we might be spared and given the opportunity to be forgiven. Grace is not cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about it as being costly grace. Forgiveness is free for us, but it cost Jesus everything. A very high price. And so under this duress, as Jesus is calling out to his father, he's sweating blood. There's no other way. Oh, there's plenty of ways to God. Well, then Jesus and God had some miscommunication, okay? Because according to them, from what we see that happened, there was no other way. So this is what's going on. Now, Judas brings a group and they arrest Jesus. So the first thing we see is in the garden, there is no other way. Second thing we see in the garden is that Jesus is in control. Now in the book of John, John chapter 18, verses 4 through 8, John records that when they came, Jesus said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Now, most versions will say, I am he. The he is not there in the Greek, okay? He just says, ego ami, I am. Okay, that is the name for God. Moses, who shall I say sent me? Tell them, I am that I am has sent you. So just by saying two words, they fall back and fall to the ground at his identifying himself as God incarnate. 
the I am. Then he makes his demands. You let everybody else go. You came for me, let everybody else go. Jesus is in control of the situation and we'll see this through the entire process. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus did not get caught up in politics and religious tensions and things. He willingly went to the cross. He even makes the comment when, you know, Peter lops off Malchus's ear. He says, I can call down a legion of angels right now if I want to and shut this all down. So remember, Jesus is not a victim. He's going willingly in obedience to the Father. He's in control of the situation. Okay? Now, going on. Now he's arrested. There are three Jewish trials. Okay? John tells us the first was after they arrested him, they took him to Annas. Annas was the former high priest, and he was the most respected high priest. He was the big guy, all right? So the first thing they do is they take Jesus to Annas. And they try him before Annas. But, of course, they can't find any charges against him. They bring him false witnesses. Nothing sticks. And so finally, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you say that I am. So Annas is, what more evidence do we need? He said this himself. We crucify him. Kill him. Then he sends Jesus to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is the high priest at that time. Okay? Because we've got to keep things according to the rules. We've got to really go to the main high priest. Okay? Same thing, they could not bring any charges against Jesus. They tried to get him to testify against himself. And then, after that one, they send him to the Sanhedrin after sunrise. Okay? He stands before the Sanhedrin. They finally get two people who say, he said he would destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it. Oh, that's blasphemy. And then they try to get him to testify against himself. And they call him a blasphemer and they condemn him to death. All three of those were illegal court hearings. Two of them, the first two, happened at night. That's illegal. They also used all three of them false witnesses. That's illegal. And one of them... They slapped Jesus for calling them on the illegality of what they were doing, which that was illegal. You can't strike somebody unless they have been condemned. And on top of that, they tried to get Jesus to testify against himself, all three of them. That's illegal. All right. So this is all a farce. The thing about this is Jesus stands before the Jewish courts who are concerned, quote, quote, about the law of God, and he is found innocent 
pertaining to the law of God. Then they send him to Pilate and he goes through three Gentile trials. What's going on pertaining to the law of man? Ah, he's a rebel. He's saying rebel against Caesar. Well, Pilate found no no, uh, guilt in him, right? And then when he found out about the fact that he was from Galilee, Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. And you know that Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with this, right? So he sends Jesus to Herod to try to get out of it. What we find about Herod, if you go to verse 6 in chapter 23 of Luke, it says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Now, Matthew tells us that this third trial, the second one before Pilate, she sends word to Pilate and says, Honey, I have been up all night because of this guy, suffering many things in a dream. Don't have anything to do with this righteous man. You need to get out of this. Leave it alone. But because of the pressure of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, he caves. He caves to peer pressure. They say to him, if you are a friend of Caesar's, you're not going to let this guy get off because he claims himself to be a king and there's no king but Caesar. Pilate was not the best leader, and he was on shaky ground. So this scared him, and he went ahead and he caved to the pressure. Okay? So he hands Jesus over to be scourged. Now go over to Mark chapter 15, verse 15. Mark reiterates this, this uh, caving of Pilate. It says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Okay. So the scourging. This is what happens. Okay. 
This is not, and, and people have, most people have an incorrect understanding. The idea that Jesus received 40 lashes, okay, less one. That's the Jewish form of scourging. They had a whip, usually with four leather strips, and they would, the law said in Deuteronomy you could do 40. But they would do 39, not because of mercy, but because they didn't want to break the law and go over 40, okay? Was that 38 or 39? I don't know. Man, we better call it good at 39. Okay, we'll do that. We don't want to break the law, okay? That's not what Jesus was going through. So in regards to the law of God, before the three Jewish trials, he's innocent. Before the three Gentile trials, he's innocent. Scourging was a means to extract confessions from criminals. So when a criminal was getting ready to be scourged, they would be stripped completely naked, okay? And then the whip would come out. This is Roman. It had multiple leather strands with pieces of bone, metal, glass, and lead balls woven into them. A lot of people started confessing before the blows ever hit. If you're going to be crucified, might as well just go through that instead of all this on top of it. But the Romans wanted to make sure that they solved all the crimes and got all the confessions. And so they didn't stop at 40. They would whip and whip and whip until either they got all the information they wanted or the person was almost dead. Okay? So, when it says that they scourged Jesus, he was stripped naked. He didn't have anything to confess. And they weren't counting to 40 or 39. And the blows began to hit. And they would whip the person, they whipped Jesus from his upper torso to his upper legs. Okay? Around the front, sides, back. The lead balls would cause bruising and then the skin would burst. The bone, the metal, and the glass dug in and turn the flesh into ribbons. Psalm 22, Jesus says, I can count all my bones. He's laid open, torn apart. And then they stop. Jesus is going into shock. There's extreme blood loss. His body and his organs cannot get the oxygen they need. Then they take him before the battalion. And this is what it says, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. It's really a cohort. 480 soldiers. They got everybody together for the show. 
And they clothed him in a purple cloak. His body is ravaged. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Understand, the hematidrosis, his skin was extremely tender. And they ran this down upon his scalp. And the bleeding continues. The pain continues. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Pretty awful picture. This is one of those places where you look at the word. It says they led him out to crucify him. Led, right? And he carried his cross. It wasn't, you know, the cross that we think of. It was the patabellum, the cross beam, okay? So he carried that to Golgotha. But he couldn't make it. Like I said, he was already going into shock. His organs were shutting down. He was having severe hemorrhaging and problems. And notice what it says in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Another important important word, they brought him, okay? At first, they were leading him. He couldn't go any further. They grab Simon. He takes the cross, the cross beam. And they brought, the word means to carry, transport. So did they carry him? Did they drag him? We don't know. What we do know is Jesus couldn't do it. He was broken, beaten, And shattered. Then they take him to Golgotha. And they put that cross beam down on the ground. And they lay him down, throw him down probably. The gravel, the dirt, sticks going into the wounds and stuff in his back and sides. And they drive the spikes into his wrists. Not his hands. They can't support the weight. The wrists. Then they hoist him up onto the main post. When they put him on there, his shoulders and arms dislocate. This is just normal crucifixion. You can look it up. Okay, Azusa Pacific University has a great article on it. If you can call it great. Let's say a very clear one. So when his weight came down, the way he was laid out on that cross, at minimum, doctors say that the shoulders and the arms dislocated six inches. That's why Psalm 22, Jesus says, my bones are out of joint. And then they drive the spike through his feet. He cannot pull himself up to breathe. So he has to push 
with his feet against the spike to bring in air. So what's happening now is he's dehydrated. His body's in shock. He is suffocating slowly because he can't get the air out. So he pushes up against the spike to take in breath and to exhale. And carbon dioxide is building up in his bloodstream, worse than it was when he started going into shock. And his muscles are in excruciating pain. Now, I'll stop here. Jesus is doing this for us. Jesus knew what he was getting into. This was prophesied before he ever came to earth the first time. He knew. And he did it for us. Sin is a horrible thing and God judges it. And we see the extent of that judgment here on the cross. It wasn't a firing squad. It wasn't a noose. It wasn't a lethal injection. It was hideous. It was violent. God has to deal with sin. And we see how the punishment is laid out here at the cross. So, verse 33 of chapter 15, the book of Mark. Also, his heart is beating like crazy, trying to get blood to flow and get oxygen to his muscles and his organs. Fluid is building up around the heart, the pericardium. So when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Roman historians talk about this, okay? Eusebius, Origen. Origen was not, he, he was a church father, but quoting Eusebius, who was a uh, Roman historian, okay? This happened, all right? The earthquake happened. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this time, all of our sin was put into Jesus' account. He who knew no sin became sin for us, the Bible tells us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He didn't know sin. He has been vindicated before the Jewish tribunals. He has been vindicated before the Gentile tribunals. He has been vindicated by his silence through the scourging. He is innocent. And now all of my junk, my rebellion, my sin, and for every other person, on the face of the planet that would ever exist, was put on him. And he cries out to the Father. There is something between him and Father that there never was before. This thing called sin. And he cries out. 
this beautiful eternal relationship has this now. As he took our sin upon himself. And someone ran and filled a sponge. Oh, I'm sorry. And some of the bystanders hearing said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw this in the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Why? When you were being crucified, you could not breathe without incredible work. You whispered because you couldn't get enough air out to get the vocal cords to move properly. So in this state, Jesus cries out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? We're also told that he cries out in a loud voice before he breathes his last. The other Gospels tell us that he said, it is finished, right? He did not, like the movies show, it is finished. No, no wimpy stuff. You're not going to impress a centurion with that kind of stuff. He yelled, shouted in victory, it is finished. That is a financing term, paid in full. In the book of Colossians, it says that Jesus nailed our certificate of debt to the cross, having paid it in full. So during this transaction, when Jesus is being crucified, when he is nailed to the cross, he's taking my certificate of debt that holds me accountable before God for my sin and declares the worthiness of my judgment from him and the wrath of God upon my life. He took that and he himself nailed it onto the cross. Our sins are forgiven. A huge debt that we cannot pay, but he did it. And when he did it, he yelled it out in triumph, in victory. And then he cried out a third time, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He gave up his life. Jesus said, no one has the authority to take it from me. No one has the authority to give it back. I alone have the authority. Jesus, when it was all said and done, and he paid every last drop of blood, said it's finished. Let's wrap this up. Daddy, I'm coming home. I commit my spirit into your care. It's over. That is the transaction that happened. There was an earthquake. That is substantiated by history. There was darkness. It was an abnormal eclipse. Okay? Why do I say that? Because the Passover happens during a full moon. 
you don't have an eclipse during a full moon. This was very unusual. It's like creation itself was mourning. And what we're told by Matthew is not only was that the, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, some people debate about how thick that veil is, okay? Josephus, a historian, says it was roughly four inches thick, okay? The Mishnah, which is the, the codifying, the writing of the oral traditions of the Hebrews and how they interpret the law, said it was the, a hand breadth. But some people say, well, it was four inches. Some people say, no, it was one inch, okay, the, the shorter width. Either way, it was torn from top to bottom at this time. Why? Because Jesus opened the barrier between us and God. The Passover lamb gave his life once for all. And he sprinkled his blood, Hebrews tells us, upon the mercy seat in heaven itself. And because of that, we have access to the Father directly because of what Jesus did. The door is open. With the earthquake, rocks were split, tombs were opened. And after Jesus rose from the dead, Matthew tells us that saints rose from the dead as well and walked out of those tombs into Jerusalem as a witness to what had happened. Now think about that. And first, the people that first came to mind for me would be Simeon and Anna, they were the ones who were there in the temple when Jesus was brought. And they prophesied as to who he was. And they were so excited to see the Messiah. They believed on him. And I don't know if, if they were some of those that came out, but can you imagine? You're in Jerusalem. This whole thing has gone down. And it's Sunday. And you take a double take because somebody who was dead a few years ago or a month ago, is walking down the street? Would that freak you out? That gets your attention. This is what's so cool. Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, we have confidence that we too will rise from the dead. See, if Jesus had said, your sins are forgiven, I'm dying for you on the cross, and he laid in the tomb and he stayed in the tomb. Okay, is the debt paid? Well, he said so. But there's a lot of people who die for causes. Is it true? Is it not? I don't know. Jesus' resurrection is proof that what he said happened. It's not just talk. Believe in me and you will have eternal life. Hey, look, I'm back from the dead. I raised a few other people too to show you just kind of what it looks like. And uh, if you put your faith in me, you will live forever with me. You will rise again. There's hope in that. It makes me think back when 
my youngest daughter, she was stillborn. And some of you have heard me say this. But God raised her back from the dead. And what's so cool is he was working the whole time. And the next day was Sunday. Now, God brought to my mind the situation with Jairus and his daughter. And the Lord told me, don't be afraid anymore. Just believe. And God was doing things. The next day, it was Sunday, and we're in the hospital. And we turn on the TV because we televised on our local uh, uh, access channel our Sunday morning sermons. And I wasn't there, so I was like, hey, I wonder how the sermon went. And so I was waiting to see. I forget who was filling in for me. But our show comes on, our program comes on, and it's me. And I'm watching myself. Because they had technical difficulties that morning. They couldn't get the tape to the uh, TV station. And so they put in my Easter message. And my Easter message was the hope that we have because we have a risen Savior. And I'm like, dang, that is so cool. I have a risen Savior. I have a risen daughter. Oh, this is good. And one day I'm going to rise from the dead too. See, I don't serve a dead Jesus. I don't serve a fairy tale. Neither do you. He is alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming back soon. Oh, my word. We have hope because of this, because of the gospel. So I want to finish with this. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Okay? So we know this is what Paul says. These are the things that are first of most importance. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. We understand better what that cost looked like. He was buried. He was put into a tomb. A big stone was rolled over it. It was sealed with a Roman seal. And four to 16 Roman guards were sent to guard it. You did not get by them. And they were not going to let you get by them. Because if you got by them and the body was gone, Pilate was going to have your head. Literally, you were dead. Okay? That's why after Jesus rose from the dead, they ran to the Pharisees and said, hey, we got a problem here. The Pharisees paid him off saying, you just tell them that their disciples stole the body. And if Pilate has any issues, we'll deal with it. Okay. When Mary, Martha, and the other gals came to the, the tomb, they're like, who's going to roll away this stone for us? And when they got there, the stone was already rolled away. See, an angel had come along. And 
these giant stones, you know, they can be as tall as I am or bigger, and they sit in a trough before the doorway of the tomb. You don't just hit a button and have that thing roll back. It takes a few folks to get it moving, okay, because it's on a downhill slant to roll in. An angel comes. John uses a very specific word for taken away. It means that this big stone was actually lifted up and tossed. And off it rolls. The guards freaked. They passed out. And then they went and ran away to the Pharisees. The ladies come and they're like, it's already moved. And he's not here. And the angels are saying, hey, he's not here. He's alive. And he rose just like he said. And so he first greets Mary. Then the other ladies. Then Peter. Then the twelve. Verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, Peter. Then to the twelve. Remember, they're all freaking out and hiding. All right? So he goes and he meets them in that room. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That's Paul's way of saying, look, you got any questions about whether or not they saw Jesus? Most of them are alive. You can go talk to them. Okay? This was not just some delusion. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. That's not just the 12. That's all the Senate ones. Maybe the 72 that we looked at last week okay last of all to as one untimely born he appeared also to me so he appeared to James his half-brother remember James and the rest of the family thought big brother Jesus was off his rocker and they're like hey we need to go and take him away they didn't believe James believed. When Jesus comes out of the tomb and he's bearing the nail prints in his wrists and he's had a lance driven through his heart and pericardium where the blood and water flowed and he's got the nail prints in his feet and the scars on his head from the crown of thorns. James believes. James laid down his life for the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The doubter became a believer and a martyr. And then Paul, who fought the church tooth and nail, who hated Jesus, hated Christianity, hated the message, becomes a champion of Christ because of a personal encounter with the risen Savior. Not religion, not belief, but a real living person. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they were secret disciples of Jesus. It says in Mark that, that uh, Joseph was no longer secret. He took courage and he went straight to Pilate and said, I want the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, 
He's, I think he's got to have remembered when he and Jesus were talking about, if I be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up. And Moses said, look to the serpent, put your faith. When you do that to me, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Nicodemus was no longer a secret disciple. These people went out, the, the 12, they were scared to death. Now they're proclaiming the risen Christ from the housetops, not in some distant land, but right there in Jerusalem where it happened. If you want to start a lie or a legend, don't do it where everything happened because a lie can get shot down really quick. So take all of this in. Jesus said, it is finished. You can't add anything to what Jesus did on the cross. Paid in full. I'm not good enough. Nobody is. That's why he went to the cross. I screw up. Welcome to the club. His love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus loves you. This I know. Because the scriptures tell us so. He loves you to death, literally. You are so precious that he went through this for you. You are so precious to God that he sent his son to go through this for you and for me. You are loved. You are bought. You are paid for. You are freed. And so may we live with boldness like Nicodemus, like Joseph, like the 12, and so many others who boldly walked in this world for the cause of Christ because they had a personal relationship with the risen Lord. This is why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the dunamis, the moving power of God unto salvation. This is what we have in Christ. And be comforted. You are loved so much. This was done for us. Isn't that awesome? And because of this, we're blood-brought children of the Most High God adopted not little kids okay the bible says we're adult children adopted okay that means we have the rights and responsibilities of an heir of god let us go out with joy and boldness and gratitude for what jesus christ has done for us and we are secure in his finished work on our lives